Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. I'm Jeff Capshaw. I'm a member here. And for those of you who are visiting, our pastor is on sabbatical. And so I hope you will come back again when he's here in the fall. And I hope those of you who are members here will continue to pray for Nate. It was so good to see him here last Sunday. So uh, let's read the scripture together. I think it's going to be better for you to use your bulletin. I've chosen several texts out of 2 Peter. Had to do a little bit of shifting this week. Uh, I was scheduled for next week, but got the call uh, a little bit later in this week. So uh, we'll figure it out as we go. How about that? So let's, uh, let's read together these texts in your bulletin insert. And I've chosen them purposefully to give you uh, a good background, sort of an overview of the book of Second Peter. So let's read together, if you would, please. Second Peter 2, 1 to 12, uh, 1, 12 to 15 first, and then you see the rest following Syriatim. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Well, sadly for you, this is going to amount to a lengthy introduction to next Sunday's sermon. So uh, you'll have to listen fastly, and uh, I hope uh, you'll, you'll get the impact of what Peter's trying to tell us here. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture emphasizes two prominent themes, orthodoxy and ortho orthopraxy. That is, the content of our belief and the character of our behavior. 
And both are our responsibility. For example, in the Old Testament, the word yashar is used in theological settings as unchanging standards, correctness, genuineness, and forthrightness. Another word, tzaddik, means straightness or firmness. It is employed in the context of justice, righteousness, uprightness, and equity. Now emphasize these two aspects of belief and behavior because the agents Peter describes in 2 Peter 2 and 3 are anything but genuine, forthright, just, upright, or right. As we will see soon, they are exactly the opposite, and we'll see a bit more about that in just a moment. So, at the beginning here, a few things about the book itself are in order. This is New Testament survey time, okay? All right. So, one of the most challenging things a biblical interpreter will face in any biblical book is the implied information that's missing from us. In other words, the original audiences knew things that we simply just don't know. And so a lot of times, a biblical interpreter is left to drawing on historical evidences, external biblical things, usually other scholars and commentaries, and we just don't know. I mean, always it isn't as unequivocally clear as then, for example, in John chapter 20 and verse 31. John tells us straight up what is the purpose of his book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing on the Son of God, you might have life through his name. That's clear. It's unequivocal. It's unambiguous what the purpose of that book is about. And although 2 Peter presents us with some historical problems, some canonical problems, some authorial problems, some problems about who the original audience was, We know exactly, according to your bulletin, you will see that, that he tells us in chapter 1, this is a general epistle for the Catholic or universal church, that is, those who are God's elect. And that would include us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And in spite of some of the problems affiliated with 2 Peter, nonetheless, in God's providence, this is one of the canonical books. The church has said, always everywhere, that this is the Word of God. And we ought to take it as that. So, what is the situation that Peter is addressing? And that's really what this sermon is about. Because next week, I'm going to come back to you and hopefully bring a message to you on so what. Peter is addressing the problem of bad people who say and do bad things both inside and outside the church. He calls them false teachers and scoffers. Now, if the president were to tweet about these guys, he would say, these are very bad people, really bad people. They say and do really bad things. I'm glad you can laugh. False prophets were among you. No doubt a reference to the false prophets in ancient Israel. And he says, just like there were false prophets in ancient Israel, there are going to be false teachers among you. 
the church. Let me uh, share with you uh, a bit of a lengthy quote from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. The word false prophet per se isn't in the Hebrew Bible. We find this word false prophet and false teacher that coming from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so Peter adopts that false teacher idea, lying teacher, from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Here's what the article says. False prophets prophesied lies. They deceived the people with their dreams. They prophesied by the alleged authority of Baal. They threatened the lives of true prophets and dared to speak when they had not stood in the council of Yahweh and received a word directly from the Lord. Typically, their prophecies promised peace where there was no peace to be had. Their visions were drawn out of their own hearts. Some false prophets used magic. Others appear to use divination, soothsaying, witchcraft, necromancy, and sorcery, which were all forbidden arts and practices, as we see in the classic passage on Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 18. The false prophets gave the people what they wanted to hear. In other words, they whitewashed everything and told people what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. Now, if you can't see, I think we all can see and agree that there was an occultish notion to these false prophets of the Old Testament. And therefore, it's my opinion that this is why when we read 2 Peter 2, we read this just rhetorical flurry of attacks on the character and the behavior and the outcome of these false prophets. If you and I were to have written 2 Peter, we probably would have just reversed the way it's written. We probably would have started with maybe chapter 2 and then chapter 3. You know, we would have started with the false prophets. We would have gone on to the scoffers, and then we would have ended with chapter 1 on the so what? What is the church to do about these things? But Peter really kind of inverts that. He gives the solution and then the problem. And you find Paul doing that sometimes in his argument. Sometimes he'll give you the problem and then the solution, but oftentimes, like for example in Romans chapter 5, he gives the solution first and then the problem. And that is exactly what Peter's doing here. He gives the solution to the problem, and then chapters 2 and 3 are the problem. Now, Peter goes on and contrasts these bad people who do and say bad things with more or less good people of the Old Testament who lived among bad people who did and said good things. Are you seeing the binarity here? It's childlike simple. It's good, it's bad. It's right, it's wrong. What am I talking about? Well, Peter contrasts, first of all, Noah. He says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's a good guy with good content, right, in his belief system. But judge the rest of rebellious, bad people. Secondly, Peter tells us in his epistle here, God saved righteous Lot, a good guy, but destroyed wicked cities, bad people, Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, Take care that you, good people, are not carried away with the era of lawless people, bad people, and lose your own stability. Here's the rub. 
Peter is saying this. The elect are portrayed as the lots and the Noahs of our day. Good people. Living among the rebellious and wicked people, bad people, the unelect of today. I don't like it any more than you do. It's uncomfortable, and it's going to get more uncomfortable. A similar rebellion and and wickedness is for Peter manifested in the agents of chapter 2 and 3. Namely, lying teachers and scoffers. And here's what I want to impress upon us today. Here is what I want to argue today. False teachers and scoffers are as old as ancient Israel, and they are a real threat to God's people. They are depicted as both internal and external threats. But, according to Peter, the best defense against rebellion and wickedness and false doctrine, lying teachers, scoffers, is this. Godliness and growth in grace. That's the best defense. Young people, some of you going off to a state school, you're going off to hear scoffers, and you're going to hear them. They're going to make fun of your Christianity, and they're going to do everything they can to undermine your faith. But remember, the best weapon you have is growth in grace and godliness. Oh, yeah. It's it's great to have some good Christian worldview thinking. It's great to have some ammunition. It's great to be able to counter the naysayers. But that alone is not enough. And so having said that, this week we'll look at the general problem and next week the specific solution. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. I want you to be thinking about, as, as we go through this, these passages, how are character and content of belief related? How are character and belief related? How are doctrine and deportment or duty and character, how are those two things related? Does one control the other? If so, which one? I've always heard, tell me what you believe, and I'll show you how you ought to behave. Or is it, show me what you do, and I'll tell you what you really believe. Which controls the other? Which is it? So, let's do this. Let's go through this rhetorical bombing raid in in chapter 2, and that's what it is. It almost reminds me of Doodle's raid on Berlin. Wow, Peter is just, it's a flurry of ad hominem arguments against these people. So let's look at what he says. This is point number one, summary of chapter two, if you're taking notes. Apostates and false teachers, or bad people that do bad things. Number one, why do I say apostate? What is an apostate? An apostate is someone that was once in a position seemingly, and went backward. He apostatized. He turned on the faith. P- 
Peter says, they once knew the truth, they once knew the way of righteousness, but they have forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. Now that raises an interesting theological question. And I have five views for you, four. Number one, how is it that these people could, be, could have said to be redeemed by the Lord, but now they're excoriated because they're reprobates, they're apostates, they're false teachers? How could that happen? View number one. This is from the New International Critical Commentary. A guy by the name of Blum wrote this many, many years ago, so I'll have to give the commentary credit, except I've got a little bit of my own stuff smuggled in here, if that's okay. Number one, what does that mean? How is that possible? What do we mean by apostasy? How can one be a preacher and yet become an apostate? False prophets were redeemed, but they fell away. They lost their salvation. That's the typical Arminian view. View number two. These false prophets were in fact redeemed, but it's not in a salvific context. It's more in a temporal context. Not talking about redeemed from salvation. And we find this notion of redemption often used in the Old Testament. Redemption from famine, redemption from difficult circumstances. It's not necessarily soteriological, but it becomes a powerful motif and example in the Old Testament of what spiritual salvation really looks like. Third, they simply profess to be redeemed believers, but they are lying. Sound familiar? Lying prophets, pseudo-didascaloi, false teachers. Yeah, I like this one. They are unelect. They're unregenerate, professors of faith. They're part of the visible church, but they are not regenerate. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. There are five warnings to those who are unregenerate believers. They are part of the visible church, but they are not regenerate. They're not born again. Yeah, that's a hard saying. It's a tough providence. I don't like it. There's a lot of things in the Bible I don't like necessarily. I don't like hell. But I have to, do I believe it? Is this my ultimate authority or is it not? Fifth view. Calvin, of course, I have to quote Calvin, right? I wouldn't be a good Presbyterian. Calvin quotes, and, and I like this, okay. Strong on perseverance. Those who throw over the traces and plunge themselves into every kind of license are not unjustly said to deny Christ by whom they are redeemed. So, it appears they've denied him, but ultimately, and you can read this in the confession, that's impossible. So, these are liars, false teachers, bad people that do bad things. Now, listen carefully, and this is what Peter's doing. He, is, he, he wants us to feel this. So, I could take let's say an hour, I'm not going to, but I could take an hour and we could drill down deep in all the Greek words and the literary devices here and you know, we could dig into the history of what he's saying here and look at the literary couplets and all the rhetorical devices and just really grind on chapter 2 and 3 and spend days. And I guarantee you it would not move the needle of your needed understanding one point. It just wouldn't. Because that's not the intent. He wants us to feel this. Listen to what he says as he sums up their character. They're sensual, greedy, 
ungodly, unrighteous, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, blots, blemishes, eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, hearts trained in greed, waterless springs, they're dry, they're empty, they're of no value, misdriven by storms, they are bold and willful. That's their character. Bob, you have to be typing fast, brother. You got it? All right. You can have my notes, and so just let me email it to you. Their behavior. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're clandestine, double agents, appearing to be one thing, but in reality they're another. They exploit with their false words. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They despise authority. They are fearless in their rebellion. They take pleasure in reveling in the daytime. They're party boys. They revel in their deceptions while feasting. They entice unsteady souls, and they followed the way of Balaam. They have loved money more than God, and they have taught immorality. There's mercenary greed and sexual impurity amongst these false prophets. They love the gain for wrongdoing. They live as slaves of corruption, not slaves to Christ. They entice by sinful passions those who are barely escaping. That's Peter's rhetorical flurry against these false teachers. Now, are you with me? This means yes. I'll give you a little break, let you breathe a second. What about the content of their teaching? Well, ultimately, and, 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 and really as we look throughout the history of the church, really all heresies turn on one thing, more or less. Who is Jesus? Now, there's a lot of Trinitarian struggling conflict, but really it turns on who is Jesus. And these denied the master who brought them. Now, this could be a reference to the Lord, Yahweh, but how do you separate them, right? I mean, John chapter 12 proves that Jesus is Yahweh. He said, Isaiah saw Jesus in the temple. I don't try to separate the two. They blaspheme the glorious ones, probably a reference to angels. They blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant. They speak loud boasts of folly. That is, they boast about foolish things. They promise freedom and they deliver bondage. Now, this is the fifth point under major point number one. And we're almost, we're getting there. What are the consequences? This is, this is a hard providence. This is tough. This is tough. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Pretty clear. And my dear friend here, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, the Spirit of God is calling you to believe the gospel this morning. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here, best way I know how, by the grace of God, to proclaim the truth. That's my only mission. Peter says these false teachers are in active destruction. 
They are accursed children. Utter darkness is reserved for them. And in Jude 4, he says, which by the way, 90% of what's in 2 Peter 2 is in Jude. And we'll not get into all the literary dependency and all that. But hey, you get a twofer. If you know 2 Peter, you know Jude. Right? So there's two biblical books you're going to get here, hopefully, in the next two Sundays. Lord willing. And as we say in Tennessee, the creek doesn't rise. Jude said they were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Again. They are not the elect. Now, are there any modern-day examples? Is this something that we need to be concerned about? Well, I'll be honest. It's, this is harder for me to say. I certainly think that there are modern-day popular Christian teachers, air quotes, who overtly lie about the gospel. But more insidiously, they omit the truth of the gospel. Here's what I've said before. If God did not exist, it would make zero difference in some of these televangelist preachers' ministry. Zero. Full stop. Because there's no preaching on sin. There's no vicarious atonement preaching. It's all positive thinking and self-help. And you know who I'm talking about. Christianity rises and falls on sin. Genesis chapter 3. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 5.12, wherefore is by one man sin entered to the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. From the sole of our feet to the crown of our head, there is only wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, said Isaiah. Hopelessly depraved, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sin. And my friend, if you leave that part out of the gospel, you are not a gospel teacher. You are a lying prophet. Good. Amen. Amen. Because... How can it be the gospel according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3? So although I can't say who, I don't know people's hearts, here's what I can say. I can say what Jesus said. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire because it's worthless. It's like a vapor that's blown by the mist. It's like 
a spring that has no water. Sound familiar? I can say that. Now, this isn't a lesson that you're going to have to take a quiz on. This is just a bit of historical evidence. I'm going to drop some names on you, a very short list of heresies throughout church history. And they're all wrong on Jesus. Very quickly. Again, you don't have to take a quiz. Peter, what did Peter say? There were false prophets among the people of the Old Testament. There are false teachers today in my time, and there will be false teachers in your time. And there's church history to back up what he said. Adoptionism. Jesus was crucified by God as a son, and he was adopted to be the son of God at his baptism. Apollinarianism. Jesus' divine will overshadowed and replaced his human will. Arianism from the third century. Jesus was a lesser created being than God the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, some Seventh-day Adventists. The asceticism. Jesus was divine but only seemed to be human. Eutychianism. Eutychianism. Jesus had a finite human nature, but it's swallowed up in his infinite divine nature. That's uh, late 4th, early 5th century. Monophysitism. Jesus had only one nature. He was divine. Nestorianism. Late 4th, early 5th century. Jesus was two persons. So Socinianism, during the Reformation period, it was a denial of the Trinity. Jesus is a deified man. And subordinationism. The Son is lesser than the Father in essence or attributes. Now that's a short list. Peter's right. Again, the bottom line. If one lies about Jesus, that one is a lying teacher. If a preacher or teacher is wrong on Jesus, then he or she cannot be right on the gospel. A wrong gospel is not in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that's a summary of the false teachers in two. Quickly, on to the scoffers in chapter 3. A summary of the scoffers. Take a breath. Almost done. Are you sleepy? No? Not sleepy? Okay. Wake up. I love you guys. It's summer. I can be a little bit more relaxed, right? Start Anyway. Chapter 3, scoffers. They too are lawless. What's their behavior? They're scoffing. They ridicule. They mock the gospel. They mock Christianity. They follow their own sinful desires. What's the content of their teaching? Well, mainly they scoff at the second coming of Christ. They presuppose one aspect of biblical teaching is true, namely the second coming of Christ, but then they deny other aspects of the teaching of Scripture. For example, they deny the fact of creation. They deny the fact of the flood. They believe that God's delay in a gracious uh, God's delay. They don't believe that God's delay in the coming is a gracious delay, as Second Peter says. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. They deny that. And they deny that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So they presuppose that he's coming, right, to deny his delay, to deny the creation, to deny the flood, and so forth. What's the consequences? 
it's the same as false teachers. They will be subject to God's judgment. And Peter says their works also will be exposed. Let me say it this way. Kind of a down home. That's all, the only way I know to say anything, right? Haters going to hate. Liars going to lie. And scoffers going to scoff. What about modern day examples? Scoffers. <laughs> yeah, as we would say back home, the woods is full of them. Just look at popular culture in general. The mainstream media. The political left. Hollywood. Anything that is based or anchored in tradition and that smacks of having some external authority like the Word of God is going to be mocked and scorned by this culture. Take it to the bank. CBS spun up a sitcom called Living Biblically, and it mocks Christianity. Now, thank God, I looked at the viewing. It started out at like 4 million. It's down to 1, and I think they're going to can it for next year. Richard Dawkins, in a 2012 speech in Washington, D.C., called for atheists to mock and ridicule Christianity. And boy, he is good at it. Lawrence Krauss, a cosmologist, a physicist, often takes pot shots at Christianity if you ever watch any of his videos or read any of his books. By the way, it's so funny he, how something can come from nothing except when you get to the end, it comes from the quantum field and materialism. He's a lying prophet. Bill Mayer. Oh, goodness. He is especially snarky and snide. Sam Harris, one of the new atheists. He's less mean than Dawkins, but still snidey, snarky, oftentimes undermining Christianity, making light of Christianity. The late Christopher Hitchens, another one of the new atheists, was famous for the hitch slap. Daniel Dennett, who's probably the most gracious of all these new atheists. He sings in Christmas cantatas, thinks uh, religion ought to be taught in all public schools. But even in his philosophical talks on consciousness and other things, he oftentimes makes these sarcastic little snot-snide remarks about Christians. If you're not growing in grace and godly, we're suspect to it. But let me tell you what bothers me most about, as I read, as I work through this. You know what bothers me most, more than worrying about, you know, is there some boogeyman going to come inside Ascension Presbyterian Church and start preaching false doctrine? You know, are we going to have these little disputes over pedo-baptism, or are we going to have these other disputes? Uh, oh, Paul and, the, Paul and the law, or the new vision of Paul, or, you know, the new, new understanding of Paul, or... You know, rec Reconstructionism, uh, you know, Rush Dooney and that whole gang. You know, I'm not too worried about that. You know what I'm worried about? When I read these texts, I see vestiges in Jeff Capshaw's heart of the sin in these hearts. That's what I'm worried about. That scares me. Takeaways, and I'm done. Number one, there were false prophets and scoffers among God's people in ancient Israel and false teachers and scoffers among the early church. That's a fact. Number two, 
We must understand from a reformational worldview that heresies and heretics are a necessary antithesis to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Just like the non-elect are a necessary antithesis to the elect. You can't have one without the other. And I'm sorry if that doesn't sit well with you. I wouldn't go say that in downtown Seattle. This is the church. We're supposed to say it. I'm not... I'm just telling you. You can't have one without the other. Look at what Acts says about Judas. He was ordained to that condemnation. That's a hard saying, folks. We ought to weep. An election has never been used by any good Calvinist, any good reformational thinker, as a means, as a scare tactic. It's always used as a means of hope and security and encouragement and perseverance. God saved you on purpose. Now, today I've tried to raise our awareness just as Peter did. Another big takeaway. Most heresies of yesterday and today are wrong on Jesus. I've said that three times. Who he is and what he's done. They lie about Jesus. Number three. Or number four. Although I can't be as critical as Peter about the character of those who are wrong on Jesus, who lie about him, we may say he isn't as evil appearing as those that Peter de depicts for us. But I think it is safe to say that someone who claims to be a Christian or a minister of the gospel and lies about Jesus has some deep-seated character flaws that he isn't showing us yet. Whether they are manifested or not. Listen to what Frame said, John Frame, in his Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. And again, have you been thinking about how character is tied to content of belief? How is orthopraxy, that is how we practice, how we live, tied to orthodoxy? Listen to what Frame says, and there's a heading here, says, quote, obedience is knowledge and knowledge is obedience. Very often the two are near synonyms. Second quote from Frame. Without obedience, there is not knowledge and vice versa. Frame says, if you can't do it, you don't know it. If you can't live it, you don't know it. Now thirdly, listen to Frame again. To determine if someone knows God, I love this. We do not merely give him a written exam. We examine his life. Atheism, and I, and I might add false teaching in Scripture, is practical. It is not merely a theoretical position. Denying God is seen in the corruption of one's own life. It is not one or the other. It is both. And we are responsible for both, as we'll see next Sunday. One more quote from Dostoyevsky, the brothers Karamazov. He says, quote, Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth with him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. 
and having no respect, he ceases to love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And oh Lord, give us grace to grow in grace. And give us grace to be godly. And give us grace not to turn back as these false teachers, these scoffers, these mockers. God, we need your grace. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.